been blessed by the music this morning. Let me hear you say amen. 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 It is so good to see all of you on this Lord's Day. I appreciate you coming out and being faithful week by week here at Starnes Cove. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles today and turn with me into the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 19. And I've entitled the message, Let the Church Be the Church. In Matthew chapter 16, we begin reading in verse 13. And the Bible says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You know, the greatest institution upon the face of this earth is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church that Jesus has bought and purchased with His own blood. And so church, you are a precious, cherished possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a modern time here in the 21st century where some people look around us and they say that the church is on its way down, that churches everywhere are on their way out. Well, let me just say to you that in one manner of speaking, I agree that church is on its way out. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus has saved the church out. Jesus has called the church out. Jesus has sent the church out. And one day Jesus is coming to rapture the church out. So the church is out, but in a different way than the world thinks that she is. You know, sometimes we look at what we're doing as a church and we compare ourselves with other churches and, and, uh, and we sort of get a flavor of where we are and in relationship to them. And, and sometimes we can make ourselves look better than we should and sometimes we can make ourselves look worse than we should when we compare ourselves to other people. It reminds me of the story about two mean, very wicked brothers who lived in the same community, and one of those wicked brothers died. 
And so the wicked brother who was still alive was in charge of the arrangements for the funeral. And so he goes to the pastor of the church where he and his brother had never attended. They'd never thought about the Lord or thought about the church very much. And so he goes to the pastor of the local Baptist church and and he explains to him that he needs someone to conduct the funeral for his brother who has just passed away. Well, the pastor knew all about that brother and knew what a wicked man that he was and, and uh, what a challenge it would be to do a funeral like that. And, and then the uh, wicked brother uh, said to the pastor, he said, Now, pastor, I want you to understand how serious we are about you doing this funeral. And if you will do the funeral for my brother and you will get up in the pulpit and you will call him a saint... There's $1,000 in this funeral for you if you'll just do that. Well, the pastor, being a man of God and a man of integrity, uh, but also having uh, two children in college, he realized that he could use the $1,000 and he thought, okay, how can I handle this? How can I tell the truth and yet get the $1,000? And so on the day of the funeral, the pastor stood in the pulpit And here was this man laying in the casket in front of him. He's conducting this funeral. And so the pastor stands in the pulpit and he says, Now, ladies and gentlemen, all of you know this man who is laying here before us in this casket today. You know what a wicked and vile man that he was. You know all of the sins that he committed and what a terrible lifestyle that he lived. But I suppose that you'd have to say that compared to his brother sitting over here, you'd have to call him a saint. (laughs) And so he ended up doing okay with that after all. But when we compare ourselves to one another, we get a distorted picture of who that we really are, don't we? And so what we need to do as a church is to really compare ourselves to what the Lord says that we are supposed to be. Well, in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, we see something that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus about six months before His crucifixion. For three years prior to this, the disciples of Jesus attended the world's greatest seminary, They sat at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. They heard His words. They saw His miracles. They watched how He interacted with people. And they learned all the things they needed to learn from watching with Jesus and being there at His side. Well, at the end of their three years together, Jesus gave them a final exam. And the final exam had just one question on it. And the one question was this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the disciples began to answer. Some say that you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah or you're John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. But Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about who other people say I am. Who do you say that I am? That's very important that all of us be able to answer that question, isn't it? Individually, to be able to say who Jesus is. And Simon Peter answered on that occasion, and I think he made probably the greatest statement that he ever made, when he said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. Now, out of that statement and out of this occurrence in the life of Jesus, I want you to see four very important truths that will transform our thinking and allow us to really be the church and do the work of the church in this 21st century in which we live. So the first truth that I want to call to your attention today is the saving belief of the church. The saving belief of the church. What is the saving belief of the church? It's all wrapped up in that statement made by Simon Peter when he said about Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this saving belief involves, first of all, a personal conviction about Christ. Every born-again Christian must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this was the confession, this was the conviction that Simon Peter came to about Jesus when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus told Peter, he said, now Peter, you didn't come to this conclusion just by yourself. This didn't come by flesh and blood. This, this didn't come by brain power and intellect. But this came because the Heavenly Father revealed this unto you. I want to remind you that Simon Peter sat there in the presence of Jesus for three years, listening to him teach and preach and share the Word of God and do miracles and all these things. And yet Jesus said that it was the Father in heaven who had to reveal to Simon Peter who Jesus was. Oh, that is such a reminder to me and to you as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people, as we share personally and as we, I preach from the pulpit, it is a reminder to me that God has to be the one to ultimately convince people of who Jesus is. We can do our best. We can share the word. But anything we can talk somebody into, somebody else can talk them right back out of it. But when you come to the personal conviction, because God has revealed it to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is something that cannot be taken away from you. And so when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it involved a personal conviction about Christ, but it also involved a personal confession of Christ. Peter said it outwardly, openly. Publicly, without shame. He said it gladly. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Not someone else, but you. You are the Christ. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but at the end is the way of death. We live in a world today where people get some kind of a secular mindset about who does and who doesn't go to heaven. And and we want to just try to make it as though that people can believe anything, do anything they want to do, uh, have any kind of a belief system they want to, and ultimately God's going to let everybody into heaven when it's all said and done. But let me say to you, Simon Peter, his statement 
You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. It's not someone else. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. And so I'm here today to tell you on the authority of God's Word, without stammer, without apology, that Jesus Christ is not just a good way to heaven. Jesus is not just the best way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way that people will get there. And so it's important that you come to this same place where Simon Peter did, where you can look at Jesus and say, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're my hope of life here. You're my hope of life in eternity to come. Jesus, you are everything to me. All my hope is bound up in you. A personal confession about Christ, but also this involved a personal conversion through Christ. A personal conversion. After hearing Peter's confession, Jesus turned to Peter and said to him, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now there's something going on there that uh, when we read this in English, we don't quite capture what is there in the Greek text in which the New Testament was written. But Jesus is actually saying, you are Peter, you you are Petros, you are a small rock. And upon this rock, upon the strata, upon uh, uh, upon the Petra, the foundation rock, the stratum of rock, I believe there Jesus is referring to himself, and he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So what's happening here is that Peter is becoming a piece of the rock. Peter is a partaker now of the divine nature. Jesus is saying, Peter, you've been changed. You're part of the new nature. And when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become partakers of the new nature too, don't we? That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so Jesus has come to give us a new nature, to allow us to share in His nature. And because of that, our lives are changed, our lives are different. And so the first important truth that we need to see in this passage is bound up in that statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and it involves the saving belief of the church. But the second important truth about the church we need to see regards the sovereign builder of the church. The sovereign builder of the church. In verse 18, Jesus said that I will build my church. Jesus said he was the builder of the church, that he would do it. He is the sovereign builder and he is building upon the foundation of himself. Now, let me endeavor to try to clear up a misconception that often occurs at this point regarding this particular passage of Scripture. Many people get confused and think that Peter is the foundation of the church. Well, what is really being said here? 
When Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, what is meant by that statement? There are at least three possibilities of where people have gone with their thinking in regard to answering that question. The first way that it's answered is to say that Jesus was referring to Peter. And if so, that would mean that Peter was the first pope. And of course, that's what the Roman Catholic denomination believes. But there's a second option here about what was being referred to. Jesus was referring to Peter's confession when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Could it be that Jesus is talking about the rock that he's going to build upon is this confession of Peter, this belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, I believe that is getting further and closer uh, to the truth. The third position is the one that I have come to that I actually believe is being taught here in the Scripture, and, and I'm going to give you the reason why. Jesus, I believe, was referring to himself. He was referring to himself. And it's very probable that it, we're, we're just reading words here in the text. Suppose there had been a gesture or a hand motion that would have made it clear uh, to those who were there. For example, suppose Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus talking about himself and referring to himself. So you look at these three possibilities and you say, well, I wonder which one it is. And wouldn't it be great if Simon Peter could just come right down here this morning and talk to us, he was the one who was there, and explain to us what Jesus meant about who really is this foundation that the church is built upon. Hey, guess what? I've got some good news for you. Peter can come here today and he can explain it to us. So turn with me over to the book that bears his name, one of the two books that bears his name, the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And Simon Peter, as he writes these words... I think you'll understand very clearly who Peter believed the rock to be. Okay? All right, look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Coming to Him, coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. Well, does it become, doesn't it become clear in reading this passage of Scripture, Simon Peter's own words, who he believes the rock, the stone, the foundation of the church to be? Peter's not talking about it being himself. He's not talking about it being us. He's talking about it being Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone and we then are being built as living stones upon Christ. Now, there's another point that I want you to see about this sovereign builder of the church. Jesus said he would build the church. He said he would do it. Now, when I was younger in the ministry, one of the great pressures that I brought upon myself, and and many pastors do this, they feel an incredible pressure. Church leaders feel this pressure. A pressure to build the church, to grow the church. And yet Jesus said He would do it. He said, I will build my church. There's a story that I think about often about a pastor in, in a certain town Uh, The railroad track ran right through the middle of town. And every day at 12 noon, this pastor would go down to the railroad tracks and he would watch the train come speeding by. He did that every day, day after day. Finally, someone walked up to him and said, Pastor, I notice that you're here every day at the railroad track and you watch the train come speeding by. That's unusual. Why do you do that? And the pastor responded and he said, Well, you see, in my position, it's refreshing to see something that's on the move that I'm not having to push. Sometimes pastors can feel that way. Sometimes people in ministry feel like we've got to push something. We've got to pull something. We've we've got to do something to, uh, to make something happen. And really, Jesus said, He's the one who will build the church. I love the study that many uh, Christians have done, many churches have done, called Experiencing God. And Henry Blackaby in that study talks about watching to see where God is working and joining him in that work that God is already doing. What is God doing? He's wanting to build the church. He's wanting to grow the church. And all he's asking us to do is just join with him in what he's already doing. Just join him in that and let him build the church. So that's the second great truth that we need to see in this passage of Scripture regarding the sovereign builder of the church. But then number three, I want you to notice the spiritual battle of the church. The spiritual battle of the church. Jesus inferred that there was a battle going on when in our text he said... In, in verse 18, that I'll give you your Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in a battle. We're in a battle as God's people. Uh, when you become a Christian, the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And we war against the forces of evil that are in this world. 
We war against Satan and his kingdom and the agenda that he has. And many times, Christians get weary in that battle, don't we? And sometimes we feel like we're about to lose in this kind of battle. But I want to show you one of the most encouraging truths that I know of in Scripture today regarding the church. We're in this battle, but I want you to notice where the gates are in this passage of Scripture. Okay? The gates are not on the church. The gates are on hell. It's the gates of Hades. The gates of hell, not the gates of the church. Now, let me ask you a question. Gates, gates, are gates an offensive weapon or are gates a defensive weapon? Which, which is it? Gates are a defensive weapon, aren't they? I mean, for gates to be an offensive weapon, you'd have to, you'd have to pick them up and throw them at somebody. And unless you're Samson, you're not going to have much success in doing that, are you? And so gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates are a defensive weapon. Now here's a lie that Satan has told many of us that we should not buy into. Satan wants us to believe that the gates are on the church. And that here we are as the people of God, we've hidden behind the gates and we're trying to withstand the onslaught of the enemy and Satan is pounding against us, he is coming against us and and we're about ready to throw in the towel and to give it all up. That is not the picture of the church that is in this passage of scripture that Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us the reverse of that picture. The gates are on hell. The gates are on hell, not on the church. And it's the church who's on the offense. It's the church who is marching against hell. It is the church who is invading hell. It is the church that has hell scared stiff. Because the church is the mighty church of God. It is to move forward with the gospel. People being saved. People coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord energizes. He empowers and He gives victory to the church. Now there are two hymns that picture the difference in this way of thinking. One is a hymn that I'm glad that we've just, it's been years since I've heard this hymn, and, and it would suit me if I never hear it again. But it's a hymn entitled, Hold the Fort. Hold the Fort. It's a pitiful song. I mean, it's a pitiful song, folks. Here, here's the verse. Here's one of the verses. See the mighty host advancing, Satan leading on. Mighty men around us falling, Courage almost gone. Hold the fort, for I am coming, Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace we will. Oh, that's a pitiful, defeated picture of a church right there, ladies and gentlemen. The church is about to go under. Satan's host is advancing and and I can just hear these people saying, we're holding on, Jesus. We're trying our best to hold on. But if you don't come soon, we're going to go under. That is the wrong picture of the church. Now let me give you a hymn. 
that gives us the right picture of the church. And it's entitled, Onward Christian Soldiers. And you're familiar with this song because we do sing this song and this one means something to us. And it says, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War With the Cross of Jesus Going On Before Christ the Royal Master Leads Against the Foe Forward into Battle See His Banner Go Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War With the Cross of Jesus going on before. And here's the verse that I like best. It says, At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Do you see the difference between those two hymns? And the difference in perspective, one is written from the perspective of defeat and being just about ready to go under. And the other one is written from the perspective of victory. Which one is more true to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 16? It's obvious. It's to be onward Christian soldiers. We are to march against hell. We are to take the word of God and we are to share it. We are to win those who are lost without Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the gospel, like a white hot cannonball, will go through a house made out of butter as it demolishes hell and people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And that brings me to the fourth great truth that we also see as we wrap this up today. And that is the supreme business of the church. This passage tells us about the supreme business of the church. Verse 19 says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus says that He's given us the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. What's that about? Well, scribes in those days who were the learned people in the day of Jesus Christ, scribes used to wear a key that was either sewn into their garments or it would be dangling from a belt. The key was symbolic of their knowledge, their knowledge. Jesus has given unto you and to me the keys of the kingdom. The knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us the truth. He's given us His word. He has given us His message. And we're to take those keys and we're to set people free. We're to set people free from their strongholds. Do you know anybody today who's in a stronghold and they need to be set free from it? It may be a stronghold of unbelief. They may be held as a prisoner in the chains of some addiction. They may be bound uh, in the chains of pornography. 
They may be bound in in, uh, the chains of a false concept of God. They may be bound in the chains of racism. Whatever that it is, we've got the keys of the kingdom and we need to go and we need to set the captives free. We need to let people know the freedom that is theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that song that we sometimes sing that goes along with amazing grace. Amazing grace. My chains are gone. My chains are gone. And there are people all over this building this morning who could testify to the fact that when you heard the gospel, when you came to Christ, the chains fell off. You were set free to know God, to love God, to be able to live for God to be able to serve God, and life took on a whole new meaning when the gospel was shared with you. Who do you know this week that needs the keys of the kingdom, that needs the truth of the gospel? It may be a family member. It may be a classmate. It may be a co-worker. It may be someone who lives in the neighborhood. It may be someone that you minister to when you do operation in as much in a few weeks. And out of that deed that you do, God will give an opportunity to engage in conversation and to share Jesus Christ. But people all around us need to be set free. And those of us who are in Christ, we have the freedom. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Aren't you glad to be free in Jesus Christ today? Aren't you glad you heard the gospel and you've been set free and now it's our turn to take the gospel and to help set somebody else free? I'm going to ask that we bow together in prayer. We're going to pray and then we're going to have a song of invitation. And maybe today there's someone here who needs to receive Christ. Maybe there are others who need to rededicate their lives. Maybe there are some that would like to just simply to come and pray for someone who needs to know the Lord. Maybe you want to come and present yourself to the Lord as someone that God, uh, and pray that God will use you and, and be a vessel that God can flow through. Whatever it is, let Him do His work in your life today. As we prepare for the invitation and we pray. We invite you to come. Father, Heavenly Father, we pray in Jesus' name this morning that you will reach out to all of us where we are. And I pray that you would bring every one of us to a closer relationship with Jesus than we've ever known before. For those who don't know you, may they be saved. For others, Lord, who are already Christians, I pray that you will help us, Father, to just see the need all around us, to share the gospel, to truly allow the church to be the church, that our light would shine, that we would, that we would help illuminate uh, the gospel in the lives of people. Now, Father, do the work that you want to do now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Pastor William is going to come and be here at the front. Let's all stand together. And as we have the song of invitation today, we invite you to respond to the Lord and just allow God to do what He wants to do in your lives today.